Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, uh, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm Adam Elwanger, um, and I'm excited about my guest today, who's a personal friend of mine. Uh, you might know him as Dr. Alex Petkus. You might know him as Ancient Life Coach, or you might know him from his Cost of Glory podcast, uh, which profiles the lives of people of antiquity and talks about uh, their glorious um, goings on uh, and how we could translate that into a, a an ethic for life in our age. Um, it's a good Alex, description. <laughs> Alex uh, and I met uh, after I had um, written something for I Am 1776. He has written for Man's World. He's written for the American Conservative, has a forthcoming piece in the American Mind. He's published some things for Antigone. Uh, in addition to his many scholarly articles, he is a uh, Princeton-trained classicist. Um, and on top of that, he, he had an assistant professorship at Cal State University, Fresno, and he had the balls to quit it. Um, and I want to talk to him a little bit about that today. Alex, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adam. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. Classics is a strange field. And um, I don't know if you've ever read the book White Noise by Don DeLillo. Um, but in that book, uh, the main character, I think, is a professor of German. Uh, and he's terrified that people will find out that he doesn't know how to speak German. Um, and similarly, I'm a professor of rhetoric, and I don't know Greek or Latin, um, but you do. Uh, and, and so um, I'm, I'm constantly in awe of your um, uh, scholarly repose when it comes to all things classical. I wonder, how did you get into the field of classics, like to begin with? What attracted you to that? Yeah, well, um, it's a... Uh... It's a long story. I'll try to condense it. Um, I took some Latin. I took Latin in middle school and high school in a very lackadaisical manner. Um, I, with little intention, excuse me, to do anything serious with it. Uh, but I started to enjoy it. Like in my senior year, I was a terrible student. Um, but that ended up being a subject that I kind of kind of pulled the the nosedive up. Not terrible um, enough to keep you out of the Ivies as an undergrad, right? <laughs> well, I did my undergrad at, at uh, Trinity University in San okay. Antonio. So, um, and then, yeah, I, I kind of pulled the the nose up around my senior year of high school and uh, discovered I really liked Latin. And and after that, I was a pretty good student in, in college um, because I kind of found what I wanted to, or found things that interested me. And one of them was... Um, uh, when I got to college, I it was music theory and music. And I was playing the guitar a lot and in the jazz band. I, I I got the advice from my parents to just kind of pursue your passion, which is terrible advice yeah. almost always. <laughs> so, but but I did it, and um, and I did I was doing that, and uh, I was double majoring in music, um, and uh, and communications. And actually, we had a really like a pretty good rhetoric program at Trinity. And it was in the rhetoric program and communications at Trinity was like media theory on one half and then like rhetoric and public speaking on the other half. And um, and so I first read basically anything of the Greeks. I, I guess I read like the Iliad in high school, but very lackadaisically and didn't like it. And then I um, uh, we read Plato 
and Aristotle in a classical rhetorical theory class. And I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And um, and so I uh, happened to be reading a lot of church history at the time, too. So I was just reading a lot of subjects that interested me. And um, I became a more serious Christian when I was in high school. And so I was interested in like delving more into that and the history of Christianity. And I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church. So so there was a very historical component to it, wanting to go back to like, how do I explain to my Protestant friends, like why we do all the things that we do? And you, know, you really have to go back deep for that. And so I was kind of, you know, there were, it, it, it scratched a lot of itches for me intellectually, the things that I was just curious about. And um, the short story is, I mean, I, I started taking ancient Greek when my junior year, because I, uh, there was no other option for learning Greek. I wanted to learn modern Greek so I could connect with my heritage. We've been in America for like a hundred years. Um, and I thought it would be just like a side thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, it ended up, I suddenly realized, oh, if you learn ancient Greek, then you can read the church fathers. You can read the Bible. You could also read Plato and Aristotle and like understand these works better. And, um, and uh, I had a very charismatic, intelligent, brilliant teacher um, at Trinity, uh, who's a younger guy, just like 10 years older than me. And he kind of became a mentor to me. And so um, I think it was taking that class with him and, and really seeing that classics was um, something that I had really, that I really loved about music theory is there was a kind of rigor and a method and a system that I just really just that 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 appealed to me. It was something I could master and a skill that if I mastered it, then I could go on to, you know, maybe go into a graduate program and get get paid for a while, theoretically, if you get a scholarship stipend to like study more of this stuff and get good at Greek. So I think the the skills aspect of classics really appealed to me. And it also, you know, wanted to be a better public speaker. And, you know, that's what the sophists promised. Um and, uh, and so you, there's so many different angles in classics. You can study church history, kind of, if you just read about the, you know, history of the Roman Empire. You can go into ancient Greek philosophy. You can uh, study military history. Um, it was kind of like, it seems to me like a combination of this smorgasbord discipline where I didn't have to pick on, oh, just do religious studies and you're going to be talking about religion for the rest of your life. If you become a professor or rhetoric or whatever, you know, it, there was a smorgasbord aspect, but there, there was like a hard skill foundation aspect um, that really appealed to me that, you know, I was much more of a math and science kid in high school. And so I really liked that about classics that, you know, learning the languages is pr like pretty objective and um, and it's hard and the grammar is complicated, but it makes sense, you know, that there's like a logic to it. And, um, so for a lot of reasons, I decided to at least run with this for a while. I wasn't convinced really at any point along the way that I wanted to be a professor for the rest of my life, but it was kind of assumed once I got to grad school that that's what you do. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to train you to be a professor. Uh, and so I, I went with it for a while and that's, that's sort of how I ended up kind of pursuing my interests and falling into this groove. So this is, uh, since I've known you, one of the things that's fascinated me, you're uh, some years younger than I am, um, and uh, you had acquired a 
um, tenure track professorship at a good research university um, via, you know, you had a, a good publication record, you probably could have been tenured. Um, and it would have been a cushy job that you could hold for the next uh, 30 or 40 years. Um, but you decided uh, not to go that route, ultimately. Um, and I want to hear about, you know, did did you quit the university or did the university quit you? And what were what were the factors that that uh, contributed to that decision? I got a job at Fresno State, uh, and I was really excited to get it. Um, my friends were saying, oh, that's a great that's a great starter job, you know, um, and it was uh, hang on one second. Sorry. He's talking to his little, his little one right now, I think. <laughs> yeah, the joys of working from home. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so I, I, uh, I, but, you know, w we really liked Fresno. I, I liked being close to Yosemite and Sequoia in my department. They were nice and just really like sane. I was in the um, like modern languages like Spanish and mm -hmm. Portuguese um, French kind of modern European languages department. And, uh, yeah, it would have been really easy to get tenure. I'd done most of it already. And, you know, um, but I, uh, I, I think the, the, the short story, well, the, the, the immediate cause rather was, you know, we were, we were both from Texas and we had a, a daughter, uh, that just tried to walk in the room right now. Um, but it, you know, we just had a new baby and, um, we were thinking about what the next 30 years was going to look like. And, uh, I was, I would have been comfortable kind of settling down in Fresno in a lot of ways. I was like, I don't, you know, um, I don't really believe in whole, like, you know, uh, pro athlete approach to the academic career necessarily where you just like ping around until you're nearly 50 and you finally get the, the coveted like Northeast liberal arts school, cushy job where, you know, and, you know, I'm not from that culture really. And so, um, so, and I had a job opportunity here. I should say that that made it a lot easier. My, you know, it's the, it's a family business that I'm working at now, uh, here, in, in, Houston. here in Houston. Yeah. In the industrial paint industry, it's completely different. Um, and so, like I had this other opportunity to come back home and work and, you know, make an honest living. Um, and th that was kind of what enabled it. I think I'd sort of gotten disillusioned already with academia. The other really, the simplest way to put it is I, I really enjoyed classics too much to, um, I don't know. I like, I really believed in our, what I took to be our mission as classicists. What's that? Well, I took it to be our job is we're the people who know the classical languages and understand the ancient, you know, Greeks and Romans. And we, our job is to kind of pass that knowledge on to the next generation and to kind of sing its praises. You know, it's not about, 
lionizing everybody and everything, but to say, isn't it, isn't it cool? Uh, what, you know, to, like, isn't, isn't Homer amazing? Isn't Plato fascinating? Like, look at the impact that these writers have had on our culture. Isn't it wonderful to know Greek and Latin? Doesn't that explain so much about where, you know, our experience today that you didn't even realize you, you were just scratching the surface. Um, and I sort of felt like, like it increasingly the, at least the leadership of the discipline were not really on my team in that effort. Like it, there wasn't really a, there wasn't a sense of common mission to, you know, because, you know, as we, as we've talked about many times, classics is a discipline has been a discipline in decline for a long time. And so, um, I think when I, when I started to realize that as I, as I spent more time teaching and going to more professional events and more conferences and just kind of like getting a sense of the mood and seeing the pronouncements that, you know, the kind of gatekeepers in our discipline would make publicly. Um, I thought, Oh, well, you know, what's, why, why should I be a part of this organization if they're not even so they don't really care about promoting these, classics yeah give us ideas some of these pronouncements if the leadership and the the sort of um standard bearers of the discipline are are uh making these kind of pronouncements and you said that they it, it felt as though they ha saw a different mission um than you saw what were the pronouncements and what was the mission in their eyes well when i was uh getting further on in grad school in the mid 20 teens, let's say, looking at the job market increasingly, um, we started to uh, hear a lot more about outreach, about how um, is it, you know, it's a good thing to have public outreach or, you know, that kind of like missional activity on your CV excuse me. And, um, and, and I thought that that meant, you know, um, like sharing the great things about ancient philosophy or, you know, just getting, just getting more people interested in what we do. But, um, it really kind of wasn't about that. Like if, if you, you know, if you're, if you grew up in Texas, like, or, or pro probably like most states in the United States, if you tell them, if you tell people on the street that you're a classicist, you study classics, like, what are they going to think? Okay. Here's what, what, what we assumed that they would think in the classics departments and these rarefied circles that we were running in at the Ivy leagues was, Oh, that's really, wow, that's really serious and prestigious. Wow, the Greeks and Romans, you must be smart. But that's not actually what people think. People are like, what the hell is that? It's <laughs> right. like, it's like you're, yeah, I, I'm studying they Martian. They know, they think that you study like Jane Austen and yeah. Mark Twain and Beethoven. Right. Yeah. Um, so yes. what did they mean by outreach then? Because as a, as a sort of distant observer of that discipline, it seems to me, and you could tell me if I'm wrong, that in in the mouths of of the speakers of that discipline, outreach means classics isn't diverse enough as a field. 
right? Um, mm-hmm. And that we need to, it, it's really sort of part of the DEI thing. Diversity, equity, yeah. inclusion demands a diversification of the discipline. And also that means sort of viewpoint diversity, which brings in people who are much more critical of the idea of classics as a discipline to begin with, which is the maintenance of a particular intellectual heritage that um, in their view uh, is is a means to maintain certain forms of, of power and, and oppression, various things. Do I have it right or is that wrong? Yeah, I don't think I even need to answer the question now. That's <laughs> that's basically it. Yeah, like uh, it's it, it was really just a more uh, it was like a diversity agenda that was really much more like by outreach they kind of meant more not white people on the you know on the reading list and uh and that the assumption was that that was what more people were interested in <laughs> a, well, a pretty that, big assumption what does that um, look like like in a classics department how do you de-white the reading list i mean you know that that's gonna mm. be a that's a big it's a big, pretty big task, really. Yeah, it's not easy. Uh, well, one way is to say, um, I'm going to cough here, excuse me. One way is to say, uh, Greek and Latin is not really what the classics, that doesn't exhaust the classics. So uh, what Princeton recently did, kind of, uh, I think most, a lot of people know this in academia, they 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 removed Greek and Latin as, as requirements to get a classics degree um, and for, for undergrads and uh, their justification for this, or their rather their, their explanation for this when they were challenged on this was uh, we, we, we don't want to people to do less Greek and Latin. We just want them to also be able to do other things like Sanskrit or Aramaic. Akkadian, Aramaic and yeah, so on and so on. And I think that those languages are fascinating. I mean, I studied some Syriac and Arabic and um, when I was in grad school and, uh, you know, I, great, curious people want to do other stuff. That's great. But, um, and, you know, like studying the Persians more seriously and the Ethiopians and the Egyptians and how they interact with the Greeks and Romans. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that that's just in the canonical texts like Herodotus and, uh, yeah. you know, um, and, well, and on also, and on and on this assumption that greco-roman texts are somehow white you know right it's like right you, you take somebody like augustine it's like well is augustine white i mean he's an african right mm-hmm. um he's not black african um, right but you know that it, it seems as though that you know like when we look at augustine we don't see diverse we see tradition um yeah yeah um so so like you you can kind of point to these these many examples of how we're not so white but that's not really satisfying to just redefine you know the canon like you know the greeks aren't as white as you think they don't care that much about whiteness or they don't care about race as much or at least not in the same ways as we do they certainly care about you know greeks versus barbarians and they think they're superior like everybody thinks that they're greeks superior non-greeks right mm-hmm. they yeah have a sense of themselves as and and con- contrary to our society, they don't have the oikophobia, right? Mm-hmm. They don't they don't hate themselves, right? Um, which is of course the problem, I assume. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Well, um, so so one way to do it is to you know uh, try to expand the languages, and I think um, you know that's kind of one of the problems with that is 
um, if you if you started in your freshman year with ancient Greek and you just did, you know, ancient Greek every semester of every year of a four year degree, by the end, if you're just doing the classes and not like busting your ass in the summer with intensive summer programs, but just doing the classes, like you're not really going to know ancient Greek very well at all. And um, it's really hard to learn these languages. It's really hard to master the cultures. You know, it's the same thing of doing Latin at the same time and trying to, you know, read some of the the text and translation and master the kind of knowledge that it takes. You know, it ends up being you just a, a really thin smattering, potentially, of a bunch of just old things without really having kind of mastered anything and i think that that's really unsatisfying for a lot of students and uh um so that's that's like a problem with trying to diversify is it's really you know you, you kind of take the challenge out of it in a lot of ways by lowering you lower the standards inevitably um but um the other way that you know that the outreach let's say or you know in outreach defined as kind of like diversifying the curriculum works is just studying the topic of race and gender and these like like identity what i would probably call identity politics issues in antiquity and um you know if you begin with the fact that those aren't really the most important things to these people for the most part you end up kind of talking about peripheral issues a lot and I took a whole seminar on race in antiquity as a, a grad seminar. Um, part of the reason I wanted to take it was because there was a free trip to Israel in that packaged in that course. Um, so it was kind of like a there was like a it was like a field trip uh, seminar. So so that's my you know not so I had I wasn't that interested in the subject, but I wanted to give it a chance. Um, and I ended up just being more convinced that it's a really boring topic that, that the people that, I don't know, that it's not that interesting a story. Like the race is kind of, you know, they're aware of skin, skin color is a way of identifying people of a different race. But then again, they're darkish Greeks and men are dark and women are light and, you know, race is a social construct and yet it's got a biological basis and so, i don't know like it's all kind of common sense at the yeah. end of the day and um i don't know we could have been sp spending time talking about like you know like the, the iliad's contemplation of human mortality or what is truly valuable in life and i don't know this just seems like you kind of skirt around what's really profound about you know the greatest texts of the the ancient world this is one of the problems in the field of English, too, is that um, rather than teaching texts, right, and, and teaching aesthetics, right, what makes this text a great text? What's, what makes this text a beautiful text? What happens in this text? They, the, the entire discipline is taken over by a kind of presentism that says, what can we make this text do? Right. Mm -hmm. like how can we yeah. how can we enlist this text in the service of um, this or that ideological project? Or if we can't, then the the trajectory becomes criticizing the ideological project that it does serve. Um, 
And it sounds to me like the way you're describing it, the, the classics has kind of been taken over by this presentism too, that um, it's, it's no longer about sort of uh, a clear eyed assessment of what the inheritance is that was bequeathed to us in these texts that rather it's about how, what can we make them do? How can we mm-hmm. use this? Yeah. That's interesting how you put that. Excuse me. Um, so like the, what one of the ways that it's formulated often in our discipline is the um you know people come to classics to get away from contemporary issues they want to they want to enter another world they want to have this kind of contemplative space where you immerse yourself in another culture and you know unlike with the modern language you can't just go there you you have to you have to immerse yourself through through deep study and through kind of sympathizing with um sympathizing with the culture and i think learning the language is a really important aspect of that it seems like um that uh you know, you're, you're saying that people come to classics often seeking an encounter with the unfamiliar and mm-hmm. the the way that the, the kind of newbies in the field now are doing it is familiarizing the unfamiliar, sort of mm-hmm. uh, reinventing it um, as as something that's much nearer to us, which kind of kills the exotic and uh, the the foreign elements of it. Yeah. And and it's uh you know if if the if the object is to find okay for example like you know queer a queer interpretation of catullus where you're kind of like looking at male desire and catullus and catullus is you know like making fun of uh people for their you know homosexual habits and like threatening to commit homosexual acts on people to you know <laughs> to like shame them and stuff. And they're like, if, if you, um, I don't know, like if you, if you come to the text looking for the things that obsess us now in our current political moment, you, uh, you, you end up sort of not, not listening to what their agenda is potentially. And um, yeah, I, I think it, it kind of, takes the profundity out of it um so i you know and and it's so difficult to to really there's a lot that's really different about their like like homer's take on life i mean it's uh it's just frankly hierarchical some humans are more valuable than other humans there's a kind of way to monetize or uh, there's a way to um quantify that you know like how much would you be ransomed for if you got captured like that's pretty much like a pretty objective way of of determining who is more valuable in society um achilles probably the highest that would fetch the highest price so ergo you know he's the best 95 percent of the demos would be zero dollars yeah yeah right Um, yeah like like most of us are peons and you know to to really get into their mindset and to to say that you can um that you could like like have a conversation with a person like that 
and uh and share a you know a meal together theoretically with a person like that to to get into their mind enough that you could be a guest in their house and uh and not get thrown out for being you know rude that's that's a difficult skill and uh and it takes a lot of patience and humility i think that's that's a lot of it it's kind of a pro- about approaching these texts with a certain humility um and listening to them and i mean i don't share homer's values uh but but there's something really um like some of the deep value of what we do is really you know getting out getting that distance that perspective on um on ourselves to see well a lot in as the greeks were constantly talking about a lot what we consider to be uh universals is our particulars in when it term, when it comes to customs uh you know nomos is king like custom is king this thing that herodotus talks about like you know the egyptians bury their dead this way and the persians you know, leave them out to be eaten by birds and the greeks burn them and everybody looks at the other guy and says that's impious and sacrilegious and how could you do that and you know this is what you get when you um when you study other cultures and the greeks they're they're already doing that and you know you need to kind of in, 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 inhabit that that frame of mind with them you know um and so uh i think that takes humility and i think that you know go, going overly political really is a really a big stumbling block for people especially undergrads they need you really need to have it modeled for them so the in in my discipline and i think in many humanities disciplines um classics as a field has become kind of a metonym for obsolescence um that this is a field in decline um that it will soon disappear um you've got an inside view on that i mean what what do you what would you say are the the field's prospects for a revitalization um i ask especially in the context of some of the high profile people in your field some of the people you know have have said that that classics more or less needs to be burnt down right that that this is an inheritance um that is not worth inheriting uh and so do do the people in the discipline now have the the fortitude it's going to take to push back on that um and if so, is is there a path for a revitalization of the discipline? The the decline of classics has been, um, it's it comes up again and again in this country because the well the 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 kind of starting point is around 1900. It used to be that the Harvard and Yale and Princeton would require you to pass a Greek and Latin exam before you even were admitted. So, you know, all the founding fathers and so on, and, you know, anybody college educated up to that point um, and other universities, as I understand, had similar standards. So that was dropped. That requirement was dropped in the night around 1900 as a, as a result of a, of the progressive, view the progressive movement that's associated with somebody like john dewey where you know that's all that's the past america's the future we don't really need that it's fine but like let's not make antiquity the priority that's that's like an old world kind of way of and we're trying to create the new future and 
Um, you know, the, we, we have to study these new great sciences like psychology and sociology and <laughs> free up space for... Well, they've become um, such gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so uh, and that, that really accelerated with the cultural movement of the 60s and 70s where you just saw just schools closing down their latin programs high schools and and the trend has been down 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 for so long um and it's accelerated and especially in the past i'd say you know 15 years or so um so the discipline is already like dying and you know it's just embers at this point and you know somebody like uh my old colleague at Princeton, uh, Donnell Padilla Peralta, you know, he's saying, well, if, if it's going to be this, whatever it is now, or, um, then, then it should die, which whatever, what it is now, allegedly is like white and patriarchal and, um, you know, cisgender and, which is really not even that it's not even true of our discipline anymore. I mean, our discipline, like if you look at, um, hires over the past 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's, it's just a stark majority women, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a male dominated field by any stretch. And, um, uh, and so, like, and so I think then you go, well, there's a kind of a patriarchal attitude towards the, towards the, the sources and the text. And, you know, there's like a, we we are kind of the quintessential patriarchy discipline. We're the we're the patriarchy of Western civilization, right? Like the the most um, normative, the most like elite. It, we were at some point 120 years ago, but but you know not anymore. We're pretty much dead in the water, and so I think I don't, I think the outlook is bleak um, for classics at a university level, but there's this interesting like revival of interest in classical education that you see happening kind of organically outside the universities, outside the public schools, charter schools, to some extent, private schools. Um, And, uh, and there is, there are a lot of people that at least want what they think that classics is trying to teach our kids Latin and Greek and, um, you know, reading Plutarch and, I think that's, um, I mean, that, that movement seems to be really picking up speed and there's a political edge because as these, you know, as some leading thinkers in this movement pointed out, classics didn't fall off a cliff. It was pushed, you know, like it was take, there was a deliberate move to extricate this, you know, cultural granite because it was seen as an impediment to the progressive vision of America as whatever they were envisioning America as, uh, so, um, so I think we're going to see more of a pushback and, you know, it's going to probably get dragged more into the culture wars. Um, and, uh, it's just going to be a numbers game. And I just, I don't see, I don't see the classicists in universities really, really drawing a whole lot of new blood to the discipline for their, um, progressive, you know, like everything from, you know, basically, you know, basically kind of like gut the canon and toss out the language requirements and, you know, fill, fill it up with 
the quota of, you know, groups that they want to be hired and, um, and majoring in classics. I mean, I, I just don't see, I don't see them being able to put up a really good fight against the new cultural energy long-term demographically. That's just going to be behind like, let's, let's teach our kids Greek and Latin from the classical education movement. Um, let's, uh, you know, the Greeks are cool. Homer's fun. Plato's really interesting. Christianity generally good, even if you're not a Christian. Like all of that is is going to have an effect over time. And so I think the discipline is going to really look very different in in 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's either going to be relevant to what most people think of as the classics after they've spent 15 years educating their kids in this and a new crop of classically educated Americans comes up or it's, it's just going to be, you know, not that relevant. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Uh, My, my kids are are studying Latin. Um, Mm -hmm. At this point, my daughter probably knows more than I do. Um, That, that seems to me kind of uh, tragic. I wonder you said that it's a that your discipline is sort of predominantly female now. Uh do you think that that was there just some new spark of interest among women in classics or do you think that this is a product of the efforts to diversify the the professorate? Yeah. Well, um it's kind of a dangerous question, I know. Yeah, it is a dangerous question. Uh, I mean, I'd say that, you know, the efforts that they put in seem to have paid off for sure. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and there's definitely, uh, been a huge boom in, you know, gender studies books and dissertations and, you know, senior theses and, um, you know, there, there's a lot to talk about women made up probably about half the population in antiquity and they had their own experiences. They weren't authors very often. Sappho, a good notable exception. I wrote my dissertation on a student of Hypatia of Alexandria, Diotima. you know, very interesting woman, Diotima and Plato's symposium and many, you know, noble Roman women who impacted history. And That's so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so there's, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about, but, um, you know, uh, and so I think there's been a, a lot of effort made to appeal to women to make the curriculum appeal to women. And, and, you know, and, and it's come at a cost of, you know, a big, a big kind of, um, you know, feeder subject for what we do has been military history, you know, the great battles and the great commanders. And that's just really uncool now in, in classics departments to, like the military historians don't get jobs or they're not, you know, they're not seen as relevant and they end up, you know, leaving and working in finance and then writing popular books maybe or whatever. I mean, and um, so the, the military history talent is, is, is fleeing the discipline, uh, which is a shame because that's always going to appeal to energetic young men who go on to make money and, you know, fund classics programs i mean there's a reason that it was constituted the way that it was and uh and so um we you know 
we we've we've swung pretty far in in a certain direction and i think we're just like not serving the whole of our constituency very well so let's move to a discussion of the university more broadly the the trends that you've been describing um are happening in one way or another across the disciplines of the humanities um and um the larger sort of uh culture shift that is um informing or or uh speeding the humanities decline um is is very much in power in the administrations of the universities and so i think it's safe to say that at this point you know um, the universities have been wholly institutionally captured by the cultural left um, and that the people who run universities are overwhelmingly dedicated towards um, putting some of the ideological principles of progressive leftism into practice at the institutional level. Um, so do you have ideas about how we can save the university or are we just screwed or... Um, you know, uh, do you have a vision of what you might like to see the future look like or or um, talk to us a little about that? Yeah, the there's there's the political pressure coming upon the university, um, which is really toxic for the brand. That's just, um, you know, it's it's just going to. It's not going to happen overnight, but you know it's it's losing credibility. The the whole idea of having to go to college and the university as being a place where you get enlightened and you know expand your mind and um, you know the one that you and I entered university with that I think was very a very fair characterization um, and and it probably I'm sure it still is at a lot of places. So it's a shame that um, that that the the institution just as an idea is losing a lot of credibility um and uh the other pressure on it is from the internet where it's now possible to um to build up a, a reputation as an expert without reference to institutions at all by you know uh consistently producing good content on youtube or a podcast or whatever it is the or substack model. the millerman model yeah and a lot of these people who are uh exiting it's, a lot of it is academics exiting such as myself uh millerman justin murphy um and uh um but i think increasingly i don't know it's the, there's there's a way that the internet kind of uh, is a great meritocracy for intellectual discourse. Um, and I think that that's, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's, it's just, um, you can't, you can't fight it. You, you can't really fight it, I think. Um, and so that, that's going to eat away increasingly at the, um, the necessity of going to a four-year college, you know, and certainly you know, it's. I think it's going to hit subjects that are that are subject to being to 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 competition more. Like like classics would would maybe be an example. Certainly, English and philosophy. There's just so, so much great stuff out there uh, happening without reference to institutions. You know, you don't need to. Um, 
you don't need to get a degree to, to just read a ton of philosophy and understand it. I mean, there there's certainly people who don't have that institutional training have a lot of blind spots often, or but you know, they're probably pretty good at covering them up if they've if they've gotten you know a million YouTube subscribers. So I think um, if you the institutions that don't respond to that competition well or don't think hard about what it is that the value that they offer is are are going to suffer and i think it's another thing that so i my thinking about this is sort of in, informed by my study of ancient intellectuals like i wrote my dissertation on basically ancient philosophers not the philosophy so much as their social networks some of the philosophy but you know they're it's not that original when you get to 5th century ad and they're basically still Platonists. Um, but, you know, looking at how they pay for themselves, most philosophers in the Roman Empire are really paying most of their bills by teaching rhetoric. And philosophy is a little side gig that they do. And they have a network of people interested in this uh, that they keep in touch with via letters. And, um, but, you know, they, they have to they have to find what it is that they can offer that they can sell. And, and so that gives them, that gives an ancient philosopher a kind of like direct entrepreneurial approach to, to writing, to writing, you know, beautifully to writing in a way that normal people can understand. And this is one of the things that you get when you read Plutarch, that my podcast is really based on Plutarch's lies. I'm basically trying to retell Plutarch's lives and convert them into audio form. Um, and, uh, you know, Plutarch is a philosopher that really figured out how to communicate because he figured out, you know, he didn't have this, uh, this whole, uh, superstructure telling him that what his, re that what he was doing was valuable. He had to just convince people on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that that really makes a big difference. And, um, and so, it's a real, there's a real, uh, like, there's a lot of disincentives to answering the market demand in within institutions. You know, you have all of these pressures to publish things in certain journals so you can get, tick off your requirements for tenure or promotion. Um, but those things might have very little relationship, if, if any at all, to what, what's really going to, um, you know, get traction in, in the public sphere, what's really going to get traction, just like what's, what's going to attract people to your institution in a lot of ways, like you, you have an opportunity if, if you unleashed your professoriate to be your, your department to go out there and like force them to stand in front of people and entertain them. You know, how would that, how could you, how could you accomplish that? And how would that change the, um, the way that you would set up your, your systems? I mean, it, it, there's a lot of inertia and, uh, I think being nimble. Yeah. I would want to be nimble right now. That's one of the reasons why I, I left because I saw there's going to be new opportunities opening up. A lot of institutions are going to weather this, but they're going to look different. Some of them are going to fail. There's going to be a lot of just chaos and chaos. A chaotic situation is one in which you want to be nimble, I think. So 
I talked kind to of a long-winded answer. Someone who works at a conservative think tank, um, a acquaintance of mine, and asked them what the think tank's policy is on the universities, um, and and they said just to to crush it. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> And I said, well, then what about people like me? And he said, don't worry. Once it's rubble, we'll go through and pick up the gems. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I sometimes I think that that's what has to happen. But you're right. Like, and, and part of the problem is, and this is why I think the universities are going to fail, is so many professors have never had to give a moment's thought to what they have of value to um, provide the, the general public or people who aren't academics. I mean, they've been in the system where it's just presumed by by the institution that it has value for its own sake mm -hmm. and when they're asked to um, make it real uh, for for people who have limited time limited money and a limited attention span they have absolutely no ability to to respond to to the demands there yeah like if you think about like what is how much more does a, a a finance degree cost than an English major like at a lot of places it costs the exact same mm -hmm. amount yeah well how much more does you know um how many more uh credits like I don't know how, how much more do you pay for three physics credits than you pay that you know for three uh, you know gender studies credits like you, you pay the same amount typically for the lab fees a, would be the only difference. Yeah, yeah, lab fees, you know. And so there's a kind of like mystification of the real economy that's going on there. And uh and I think that's really detrimental. Like I'm not saying that physics is worth that much more than uh, you know, gender studies. I'm saying you don't know, really. Mm -hmm. Uh you're not really in contact with uh, the financial decision-making process of of um uh, of your consumers and so I think that that really that shields you from a lot of feedback. And I'm not saying criticism, I'm saying feedback. Like you like if you want to have a successful enterprise, if you want to innovate, you need to have real feedback. You need to really know if what you're doing is working. Um and uh so like that I'd I'd be I'd be looking for that right now if I were uh if I were still in academia, I'd be trying to find ways that I could get real feedback. And, um, uh, you know, if I were an administrator trying to find ways that I could really, you know, import that into the, into the incentive structure somehow, mm -hmm. but that's very difficult to do. So you're still making moves. Um, and I described your podcast cost of glory a little bit. It's fantastic. Um, people can find it on Twitter and you on Twitter, I think, uh, at Cost of Glory. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. If any any podcast platform, it's it's on there. Um, so tell us a little bit in your own words about. Uh, you said that uh, you're you're sort of revamping uh, Plutarch's lives, um, but tell us a little bit more about your objectives there. Well, I'm hoping to. Uh, uh, make Plutarch's lives more accessible, um, to regular people. It's, uh, it's, the, it was the most, it was like the second most popular book after the Bible in the 18th century in America. Um, uh, just a very influential text, excuse me. Um, and, uh, 
And so uh, it's, I, I think telling stories about great statesmen and commanders and uh, orators um, is like an, it's just a, it's like a spiritually uplifting activity and Plutarch's lives are just incredibly entertaining. They're very like, um, kind of scene worthy. There, there are lots of famous paintings made from these like famous scenes of Plutarch's lives. They're very Hollywood at times. And, um, but if you, if you just listen to them on an audio recording, uh, they're kind of dense and there's a lot of names and places that you don't know. And you can read them if you have, if you have, time to just sit down and read them and look the things up you could get through them pretty pretty quickly especially if you have an edition that has notes and it's not like they're just forbiddingly hard to get through but you know i wanted to make a version of plutarch's lives um in a way i'm retelling them in my own way with like modern narrative techniques and a little bit just a little bit of sound effects i'm using just a time um and um You've also uh, got the voice for it. I mean, <laughs> your voice has a very sonorous quality. It's not like my crooked Great Lakes accent, which barges into things that I say here and there. A lot of times I get, uh, your voice just puts me to sleep in, in, in a good way, in a good way. <laughs> well, I have to say, I think the editing on it is really good, too. Um, yeah. I, and and I, I think some people who listen are curious. I mean, do you sit down and write these things out like and then read it or are you kind of speaking off the cuff it seems like it's too rich for you to have just extemporaneously delivered this yeah i do I, it's a little bit of both i do a lot of planning and writing ahead of time and then like i'll improvise on in the moments depending but uh you know the main thing is i have a you probably tell listening to this i have a tendency to ramble so i wanted to do as little rambling as possible. So that's one of the reasons I plan these out. I, you know, I'd spend a couple of months researching the topic and making sure I do everything in order and get the quotes and have a good pace. And uh... well, I encourage listeners to check it out because it is a tight podcast. So like, there's so many people who have podcasts like me who are just like, eh, let's just wing it and talk for an hour, but this is tight. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. I'm I appreciate ask, that. Like one parting question. You've got the Loeb library behind you. Alex Petkus is thrown on a desert island. Which five volumes is he taking? Ooh, okay. I'm gonna have to take Plato's Phaedrus. Mm, good choice. Um, I'll take uh Plutarch's Pericles. I'll take um, I'll take the Iliad. Uh, I'll take. Um, ooh, man, I probably would. Sh I, I'll take Marcus Aurelius because I should, you know, if you're on a <laughs> desert island, you're going to need that. <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, I would probably after that take, um, some tragedy, probably going to be some Sophocles. Okay. Yeah. Man, to get fantastic. me through it. Awesome choices. Well, Alex, it's a pleasure always to talk to you. Thanks for talking with me. Um, anybody who's interested in his work, certainly follow him on Twitter. Um, look uh, in publications like Man's World and some other places, a forthcoming article in the American Mind. Uh, Alex, thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Adam. Appreciate the time.